we're uh, working through a series called The Recovery of Lost Joy. And I want to talk to you tonight when the uncertainties of the future rob you of present joy. When the uncertainties of the future rob your life of present joy. Now, we've done three teachings in this series before tonight. And message one dealt with the principle that there are a lot of things that look like conversion but aren't quite. And we looked at Paul's words, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he writes to Christian people. And then he says, "Don't do you not know? You've started the Christian life and you don't understand this yet. That No, that, that won't work. That will gum up your life in all sorts of bondage and condemnation. And you should know that at the very start of your Christian walk. So we talked about things that we should know right off the bat. And it isn't just an intellectual thing. Well, you know, some Christians are smarter than others. This isn't that. This is certain things are basic requirements that you have to have when you're talking about a Christian life at all. That was message one. Two and three dealt with two things that you have to cope with in the Christian life. Condemnation for past sins. I don't think God can forgive me. That kind of false guilt. Remember I talked about the difference between repentance and condemnation. Repentance comes from the Holy Spirit. It can hurt sometimes and be painful, but it leads to something. Condemnation doesn't go anywhere. It just tells you you're no good. The devil condemns. So we looked at condemnation in message two, and then we looked at regret. Regrets. I love Jesus. I'm so grateful that I'm forgiven. I wish I'd come to him sooner. You have no idea the, the years I wasted, the mistakes I made, those kind of regrets, and how they can gum up a Christian walk. That's the three teachings that we did. Tonight... I want to talk to you not so much about the past as about the future. Fear of the future. I don't mean the kind of careful planning and thinking about the future that we all have to do. I mean something more specific. I mean that gnawing worry, I will fail. I'm going to fall. I won't be able to cope with what life throws at me. I won't be adequate. I don't know what the future holds. Good things might happen. Bad things might happen. I'm not sure I can handle the bad. Look what happened to so-and-so. Boy, if that ever happened to me. God's word speaks to that, and we'll see how far we get. I want to look at this tonight, maybe finish it tonight, maybe do two weeks on it. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 1, 3 to 8. Is that in your notes? All right. Paul writes, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy is a teenager by all reckoning. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember your tears, something happened. Timothy was weeping. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to 
to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. Seven, for God, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control or a sound mind in the old King James. Therefore, so God gave us, not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, self-control. Therefore, because of that, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor for me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So he's concerned, eight, don't be ashamed, you know, your faith, be out there with it, you're a pastor, don't be afraid. Then he says, I'm, I'm in prison because of this. So there's a bit, it doesn't say specifically, but there's a hint there. Timothy might be worried about this. Paul, he was out there. He's always shouting his faith from the rooftops. Look what it got him. Am I, I going to end up? Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. Suffering for the gospel. So we know there's an element of persecution there by the power of God. Let's look a little bit about Timothy. He was much younger than most in the ministry. This is the one Paul said, don't let people look down on you just because of your youth. And Timothy needed to hear that because he was, he was really very, very young. There wouldn't be a church in Canada that would have hired Timothy as a pastor unless it was a youth pastor because he's just, he's too young. Secondly, we know he was subject to frequent illnesses. We know that from 1 Timothy 5.23. No longer drink only wine, but water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent, underlying, ailments. We would have called Timothy sickly, is what we would describe him as. Frequent ailments. This was a bit of a pattern for Timothy. It was a way of existing for this young pastor. And boy, almost nothing sucks the joy and life out of our souls. Like, you know, you've had something maybe that lingered for a few weeks and you feel like, is this ever going to end? You know, that type. This is, Timothy's got this ongoing. It can cloud your outlook. Let's not overlook something else. This was a faith battle for Timothy. Given what we know about Paul, whenever he encountered people with sicknesses, it's almost impossible to believe he hadn't prayed for Timothy, his beloved son in the gospel. Paul told him he prayed for him day and night. So Timothy had to live with both this constant illness and the thought that prayer hasn't done anything. That's a bit of a burden. See? We know that he wept when Paul left him alone in Ephesus. It's in 2 Timothy 1.4. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. So Timothy's world kind of came crashing down when Paul left. His mentor, his, his father in the faith, he depended on Paul. Ephesus was a Busy, stubborn, idol-worshipping city. 
And Paul had been there with him to help him, to encourage him, to instruct him. Now Paul just was leaving. Timothy's all alone. And when Paul left, Timothy cried. D, we know he was emotionally prone to bouts of fear and worry. We know that from 1 Corinthians 6, 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Got to calm him down. Paul had to tell people to put Timothy at ease. What if he never saw Paul again? What if Paul were killed and he eventually was? What if persecution intensified? How would Timothy cope with the work in Ephesus by himself? So sensing that all these concerns would weigh heavily on Timothy's shoulder, Paul writes some words dealing specifically with, Timothy, here's what I want you to remember as you face the future. With all that's frightening you and upsetting you, and so we have these powerful words of hope and encouragement, and I kind of want to dissect them, pull them apart bit by bit and analyze them. The text is 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7. For this reason, I remind you, to Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. Well, look at that. And then verse 7, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, self-control. So, so Paul says there's something Timothy has to do in verse 6, fan into flame the gift of God. Secondly, Paul says there are resources God has given by himself, verse 7. Paul says God has given Timothy power, love, self-control. What I want to do tonight is start with the second part, what God has given, and then wrap up with the first part, what Timothy is supposed to do. So point number one, there are resources God has given for the future, for anyone's future, to Timothy, to me, to you. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul says, God has given Timothy and us resources of power, love, self-control. We know those words. They just kind of roll off the tongue so nicely. Everybody quotes these verses. Paul says, Timothy, when you're gripped by fear, when it kind of reaches up and grabs you by the throat when you least expect it, remember, this is not God's heritage for you. God has something better. He has marvelous provisions to overcome and defeat fear. And look at each of them. In Christ, first, we are given power. Think back now. Now. This is why I did that quick review at the beginning. Think back for a minute what I said, the first message in this series, that misconceptions about the gospel will haunt and harm us farther down the road in our Christian walk because it's so applicable here. If all you see in the Christian walk and experience is forgiveness, Jesus loved me, died for my sins, I'm forgiven. Stop. If that's all you see, you're missing something. And it will affect the way you look at the future. In the last 
25 years, I think we've seen a radical shrinking of the New Testament gospel in the mind of the average Christian. And what has been sucked out of it is, is the power of God, the ongoing power of God, the almighty, unceasing, unfailing, transforming power of the creator of the universe to make old things pass away and all things become new. And so Paul tells Timothy that he has to bring certain truths to mind. Timothy, you seem to be thinking about yourself, the life and challenges that are ahead of you, as if you're still just an unresourced person. I won't be here, Paul says. But Timothy, you've been, you've been born of the Spirit of God. God is in you. Timothy, what matters now is not just what's true of you, your weakness, your illnesses, your youth. What matters now is not just what's true of you with all your weaknesses and limitations. What matters now is what is true about the power of God. There is an enormous and still growing tendency in Christian circles to look at our lives only in terms of what we have been in the past what has happened to us in the past, more and more Christians come to view their present and their future as solely defined by the accumulation of their past experiences, limitations, responses, upbringing, temperament, education, opportunities. And I'm not one. Don't put me in that group that thinks anything to do with psychology and higher education is of the devil. That's not me. Don't put me there. But after you've said everything about inner healing or healing of the memories or different groups to help you overcome wounds and habits of the past, all of which, all of which are good in their own way, there's, there's still something in me once in a while that, that wants to shout from the rooftops, wait a minute, there's also something else. There is a divine power that slices across everything you were and creates something brand new. Whatever is true of my limitations, my environment, my temperament, the power of the Holy Spirit is designed to bring something else into the equation. The Bible says, I must never look at my life merely as the accumulated product of my 68 years of existence. There's new life. There's transformation possible. God doesn't just come to me with a list of instructions. There's life that comes with it. I recognize that you may very well be of a certain temperament. About, oh, 25 years ago now, Tim LaHaye started this big trend in his writings about spiritual temperament and Enneagrams. You've heard of that? The things people get into to sort of slot where they are psychologically, emotionally. And you may well be of a certain temperament, valid as far as it goes. I get it. And after conversion... Your temperament isn't erased, but Paul says, 
when the power of God comes, it doesn't control. This is not the determining factor of everything about Don Horbin or anybody else in this room. There's something above and beyond that dominates and fills the child of God. Now, the natural man, the unsaved, is filled and dominated and controlled by circumstances, his past, his temperament, but not the Christian. Christian has all those things, certainly, but he's dominated, uh, propelled, empowered by the Spirit of God. And it explains some verses that a lot of people have questions about. Matthew 23, 8 and 9. Jesus speaks some difficult words. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And look at these words. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Did you know those words are even in your New Testament? What is that? Don't be calling anybody else father. You've got one father. Is Jesus against family relations? Well, I think we know that's not the case. So what do these words mean? Or are they just kind of a slap on the wrist to liturgical churches and Roman Catholics who call somebody father so-and-so? And I don't think that's it. I've come to think there's a lot more going on than that in these words. Jesus comes on the scene with new life and power. And in these verses, he says, don't call anybody on earth your father. Those kind of titles. And I think here's what Jesus means. Now, now that I've come, and there's new life that's going to come to you, when I ascend to the Father and the Spirit comes, please don't think your future is determined by your heredity anymore. It's determined by my power in you. There's a world of difference there. Oh, I've just got my, and I'm not, whatever your background is, I'm not picking on you. I've just got this temper because, well, my dad had that temper. You know, we're just like that. And I'm just, and, and, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your identity isn't determined by that anymore. It's my life in you, my life in you, my power in you. In Christ, we have, actually have, a new heavenly Father. I get it. Our lives are certainly influenced on a certain level by the genes we inherit. I'm probably, if you knew my father, I'm never likely to be six foot six. We're influenced. But the power of God is so effective, so pervasive, that what God has called you to become is given by our divine Father in fashion that is much more powerful than anything else in shaping where your life is going and what you can become. Timothy, I know you're young. I know you're fearful. I know you're naturally timid. 
I know that nobody even knows what happened to your father. We don't know anything about it in the New Testament or how young you were when he was out of your life. But I want you to know, Paul would say, my young brother, those aren't the determining factors about you. You've been given more power to overcome, power to endure, power to suffer if need be. Don't measure your life by your own power any longer. Okay, power. He's given us power. Thinking about the future, fear of the future. The second thing, I took too long on that. We are given love for God, verse 7, has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power. We looked at that. And love, self-control. This is a little more confusing. Power we get, power for weakness. That'll give Timothy hope for the future. But love, what is that all about? Before Paul tells Timothy what God has given, he takes one specific sentence to tell Timothy what God hasn't given. Did you notice it? God did not give you a spirit of fear, and it's us. God has not given us a spirit of fear. I'm going to be talking about love that we're given. If God doesn't give a spirit of fear... Where, where does it come from? And before you say something out loud, the quick answer that we always jump to is, well, it's from the devil. Uh, maybe. You can't rule that out. The answer, of course, is the devil gets his grimy hands all over things like this. But I have a feeling that we might be going a little bit too quickly and that just giving part of the answer without giving all the answer might not be as helpful. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Where does fear come from? And I'll tell you where I think it comes from. Certainly the devil works with and prompts and promotes that kind of uncertainty. But fear also comes from self-love. Self-concern, self-love, self-protection, self-fulfillment. Fear has its roots in the preservation of the life of self. Because, think about this, I'm afraid I'll lose my reputation. Fear. I'm afraid my money won't last long enough. I'm afraid my business might go belly up. I'm afraid I might lose my health. Other people do. I'm afraid I won't be able to achieve this and this and this for my children. My fears come from a love that's based on wrong things. But if there's a love for God, you have a love for something that can never be taken away. And you know what that removes from your life? Fear. It removes fear. You've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love. Paul talks about this. We're not guessing here. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The love of Christ. Persecution. 
Tribulation, distress, persecution, fame, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When the love of God overrules the love of self, the love of comfort, the love of wealth, the love of esteem, it does a strong, strong dose of medicine to your fear of the future. Because what I love most, I can no longer lose. Do you get it? Power, love, I'm using the ESV, self-control. Self-control. Paul has this one more resource from God for Timothy, for you, for me. Paul calls it self-control. Verse 7, for God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, self-control. Let me, let me try and describe it like this. God, by his spirit, helps all of us to live life with a more patient perspective. God helps us by his spirit to always give him the benefit of the doubt when we don't understand what's going on. God helps us, all of us, to live life with an eternal perspective when things that are temporary slip away from our grasp and our control. Self-control. This will keep us from making huge blunders in how we try to satisfy our hearts and how we try to secure our lives. The redeemed are given, if they embrace it, the capacity to move beyond themselves, to have their mind renewed, to see God's perfect will proven in all sorts of different circumstances. Remember what we did. I say we were going to look sec first of all at the things God has given us, and then I wanted to go back and look at what we're supposed to do. So here's what Paul says Timothy has to do. It's in verse 6. We just looked at verse 7. For this reason I remind you, fan into flame. I like that. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So there's Timothy and Paul's leaving, and there's a church, and Timothy's young, and Paul calls him and lays hands on him. God, just strengthen and bless my brother Timothy. Be all that he needs, all the resource he needs, all the wisdom he needs. Guide and direct him. Fill his life with your spirit and presence. So Paul prays for Timothy like that. And then Paul leaves. Timothy can do a couple of things. He can run down the road and forget everything that Paul prayed, or he can stop and say, here, here, here was the prayer. Here's what God's going to do. Here's how God's going to answer that prayer in my life. And you, do you see what he's doing? He's doing what, what we all need to do. I am constantly amazed how often 
And I followed Jesus for quite a few years. I catch myself how often I tend to look at my Christian walk with Jesus as being more or less a finished product. And this idea that you pause every once in a while and you take things you've heard and learned and don't even think about anymore and it's, and it's like coals or, or you've made an outdoor fire maybe and you've got, it's just dying down and somebody comes and goes and you see it sparks and it warms and things start to burn again. By the way, there's a good illustration about the church in that. You ever gone to a fire where things are all burning quite nicely and they make a little, there's air going through and it's all burning nicely. You ever gone and just taken all the little chunks and just separate them from each other? What happens? And you want to get the fire going again, what do you do? Shove them all back together. That's what happens when you stay home from church. So it just cools off. Fan it into flame. People will grow more and more to center their lives on only those things that seem to be immediately pleasing to them. And in doing so, they'll miss the things that will make them ultimately safe and satisfied eternally. And the other thing that'll happen is their lives will be dominated by fear. I know we aren't the unredeemed. And I know we want to love and serve God alone. And so did Timothy. But I'm almost haunted by the way Paul feels he needs to tell this pastor. I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God. Remember, the little things of life, the groceries, your work appointments, your conference calls, your kids' soccer game, in the middle of all of it, are you missing the biggest thing of all? To fan into flame the power, love, and sound mind that the Holy Spirit wants to bring into all of our lives. Make sure, make sure that keeps glowing and burning in your heart. And everyone said, okay, that's four of you. That's good. I'm pleased that we're going to be making progress. Let's pray.